I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Tonight on Next Chapter, I'm in Silicon Valley for a power lunch with Facebook's co-pilot. We discuss her famous boss, the myth of having it all, and how in the world she juggles the demands of one billion Facebook users. Don't tell me that's Donna Karen. Uh, it's Donna Karen. I almost wore that. <laughs> really? Oh my God, I'm so glad. That would be an honor. That would be- I <laughs> could wear it up for work. Welcome. Oh, I'm yeah. so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. The Flea Street Cafe is a Silicon Valley institution. This is where Cheryl and Mark Zuckerberg first met to discuss the possibility of her joining Facebook. Their partnership is now one of the most well-known in business history. These are unbelievable. Okay, well that's how you that's how you get me in. I swear start with a biscuit. So you can't not have a biscuit when it's warm. No. You have to do that. So we're here at the Flea Street Cafe. Welcome. Nice Thank to you. have you in California again. Your, again, your neighborhood. My neighborhood. I live around the corner. And you came here for your very first meeting, or shall we call it date, with it, Mark Zuckerberg? It was, and it, it did. It was date-like mm-hmm. in the sense that you're nervous. Yes. It's a dinner. You're mm-hmm. getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. But we had our dinner, our first, very first, and only dinner we ever. Weren't, we're in public together until really? we announced I was coming to Facebook. Well, obviously went well. Went well? Yes. Went well, we actually stayed so late that the restaurant was kind of closing down. Wow. And we wanted to keep talking. That's a good one. 10 o'clock at night, way past my bedtime. <laughs> but he clearly wanted to keep talking, and he was Mark Zuckerberg. So I said, well, do you want to come over? So we came over. And then around midnight, I had to say, like, Time know, to go. Time to go. My kids are getting up in five hours, <laughs> so you're going to have to... Was the process like like dating, though? Was it like a court, courtship, trying to figure out whether it would work? Or did you know after that first meeting that it's on? I knew after that first meeting how warm he was and mm-hmm. how nice he was and how much he cared about Facebook. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely a process of getting to know each other. When you first started the job, were you staying up late at night worrying about the pressures that you were under? Did it keep you up at night? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. And the pressures I was under to make... Facebook, what it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Would Mark and I get along? Mm-hmm. Would we have the relationship we'd need to have? Because it's a very unique relationship where he runs the company, I run part of the company working for him. We really need to trust each other. Mm-hmm. You know, he was 15 years younger than I was. Mm-hmm. When I was interviewing with him one night, we were supposed to talk. And it was mm-hmm. like 9 o'clock at night. And he called and he said, well, I'll just call you later. And I said, well, I'm going to go to sleep in about 30 minutes. So, if you know, if you're still at your dinner, we'll talk tomorrow. He calls the next day. He's like... Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He said, were you sick? I said, no, I wasn't sick. He said, you went to bed at 9.30. <laughs> and I said, I wasn't sick. I'm, you know, a mother. That's what I do. children, I go to bed at 9.30. And so I definitely had this fear that I was going to be too old, uh, not understand what he was doing enough. And it was scary at first. At first. At first. So you have now written what I, I, I have to say, the modern manifesto for women in the workplace. And you call it lean in because... We got to lean in. We got to lean in. We got to encourage girls. And you've done this in your own life. Look what you've done with your school. We've got to encourage girls to lead. So women have made tons of progress. You look at 
the opportunities my mother had and my grandmother had. Mm -hmm. But we have a really small percentage of the top jobs mm -hmm. in any industry, in any nation in the world. There are very few Oprah Winfrey's. There are very few women who wield the kind of influence and have the kind of opportunities you have. Cheryl's new book is a must read for women and men. It's a smart, honest, deeply personal exploration of Cheryl's mission. She wants women to pull their chair up to the table. It starts with a healthy dose of reality. You've said there's no such thing as work-life balance. Why, no such why is there no work-life balance? I think all of these phrases people throw at women are so yeah. harmful. Having it all having is it the all. worst. Okay, having it all, please. <laughs> right? Yeah. People uh, ask you all the time, yeah, how okay. do you have it all? How, how do you have it all? Yeah. yeah. Having it all is the worst. No matter how much we all have and how grateful we are for what we have, no one has it all. Yeah. Because we all make trade-offs every single day, every single minute. Work-life balance, no one ever asks a man. Well, let, let's stay on half, half, yeah. half, having it all for a second, because I love that. Because I don't think you can, you can have it all, I feel like I do, but you can't have it all at the same time. That's right. Yeah. And what's happened, if you compare like my generation to my mother's generation, my mother says this all the time, in her generation, like work was nine to five. Monday to Friday, 40 hours, no one expected anything else. Yeah. And parenting was actually much more constrained. What's happened now? We are all connected. My industry is part of the problem, right? We yeah. are connected all the time. We expect our workers, our, our colleagues at work, to always be available. And the amount of time mothers spend one-on-one -on -one in that direct child thing with their kids has totally changed. My mother didn't organize play dates. We rode our bikes next yes. door. There were yes, no play yes, dates. Yes. She wasn't with me. You know, my mother didn't sit there with me as I did all my homework. She helped me when I asked. I checked in every so often. And, Work has changed and made it more intense, and parenting has changed and become more intense. And I'm not judging those things. They might be bad, they might be good. They make it harder and harder for working women, and almost all women in this country are working women, and almost all kids are being raised by two or one parent who's in the workforce. Absolutely. How do you get women past the guilty space? Oh, I don't have the answer to that. I How did you I get did. past it? I am not past You're it. You're not past but it. But I'm trying to get past it, and I know I want to be past it. I still feel guilty. I drop my kids off in the morning and they get out of the car and I see the other mothers who are staying all day because they're volunteering. And you know, the heart pang, whoa, would my kids be better off if I were staying? My husband, Dave, he thinks we're heroes. No one, no one does as much as we do. No one has jobs like ours and gets home the way we do. We're fantastic. Mm. Tell me, was there ever a discussion at your home about one or the other of you staying home? Was there ever that discussion? No, there was never, never that discussion because we both knew we wanted to work, but there were a lot of discussions to get us to 50-50 because one of the things I really want all women out there to know is almost no men come fully trained. You have to work on this. I like, love this, not, uh, no man comes fully trained. They do not come fully trained. And no women, we have to train ourselves too. We don't okay. come fully trained either. Yeah, and that is the biggest, if not one of the biggest, if not the biggest life decisions you make is who your life partner is gonna the be. Biggest, the most important, not just life decision, but the most important career decision you make, in my view, Ooh. is are you gonna have a life partner and who is that person gonna be? And you got married at, at what, 24, I right? I did. And then where you were divorced in a year, what did yeah. that teach you? What did it teach you? Don't do that. Don't do that? Yes. It, but it taught me a lot. Look, I didn't know myself well enough. I just didn't know myself. I married a wonderful man. We're still friends. I admire him a great deal. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't ready. I wasn't mature enough. I didn't know who I was. Cheryl has a lesson for women that can't be said enough. When the opportunity presents itself, always sit at the table. I love that chapter. Yeah, I hosted a, a breakfast for uh, Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. He came yes. to Silicon Valley. I organized, I've done this before. He had four staff members with him, senior, all women. 
you know, there's a buffet. I asked everyone to get food, sit at the table. They sat on the side. I was like, in front of everyone, I said, come on, sit at the table. And they demurred and sat at the side. So when everyone left, I sat down with them and, you know, tried to do it nicely, but it was like, I invited you to the table. First of all, you deserve that seat at the table. But no one listens to the person sitting on the side of the room. And if you watch, people who have corporate meetings, the men are at the table and the women are on the side of the table or on the side of the room. Ooh, that's good. And we have to sit at that table because our voices matter. We have to make sure women know that they have value, that their voices are important. Well, in every single chapter, you speak of the ways women, we hold ourselves back yeah. and how we can push ourselves forward. Yeah. One of my favorites is, oh. <laughs> will you be my mentor? You call it, are you my mentor? Will you be my mentor? Will you how be many my... times have you been asked that? Oh. I can't count can't how many count. times I've been asked that. But you know what I love about you? Is that you actually called it out. When I read this for the first time, I went, oh my goodness, thank you, Cheryl. <laughs> because you say, the question is a total mood killer. People, when you ask someone to be your mentor, it that is you don't a, know. that you don't know. You've known them for five minutes and somebody comes up and says, I'd like to ask you something. Would you please be my mentor? It's a total mood killer. The equivalent of turning to a pensive date and asking, what, what are, are you thinking? thinking? What are yeah, you thinking? It kills the mood. Yeah. Why, why did you do that chapter? So I think this is really important. So mentorship and sponsorship is super important for men and women. Yeah. And men have an easier time getting mentors and sponsors because we all like to help people more yes. like us. We do it yes. naturally. Yes. So men will more naturally gravitate towards men. It's also the case that men are afraid to be alone with a woman. You look at a man and a, you look at two men at a bar having a drink, two colleagues on a trip yeah. Yeah, having yeah. a bar. What is that? Mentoring. Make one of those a woman, particularly make it an older man and a younger woman. Now what does it look like? Uh -huh. it looks like dating. Yes, yes. But that's yeah. mentoring. Yes. Mentoring is all about being able to have a conversation alone. And so we have to change those perceptions because we can't. Oh, the little hair on my head just rose right there when you said <laughs> we that. We gotta change that. Mentoring is all about being having a, yeah. One-on-one -on -one conversation. There's one -on -one no mentoring conversation. without one-on-one conversation. So we, what we're doing is we're telling women, you need a mentor, you need a mentor. Yes. So they are walking up to strangers, to me, to you, to others, yes. and asking for a mentor. That's not gonna work. We need to tell them the ways to get a mentor. The ways to get a mentor are do a great job. Ask an interesting question. I've mentored people who I've met you know, there are people at work who I don't know at Facebook. I don't know everyone's 4,000 people I'd like to know everyone. And they'll walk up to me and be like, you know, when you answered that question at the company Q&A, I think you could have done it better and here's why. That person I have a relationship with. Yes. So we need to tell women how to create real relationships and we need to tell people in power, largely men, that they need to, it's a badge of honor to mentor and sponsor women. You say that the revolution, the revolution is stalled. How so? So women are making a lot of progress, and it's progress that is very important. Yeah. Women became 50% of the college graduates 30 years ago. We now get almost 60% of the master's degrees. Women are making more progress at every, every, every level, except the top. Women have been about 14% of the top jobs in corporate America for 10 years. Women just got an increase in the, in the House and Senate. We got 20% of the congressional seats, which is great. Yeah. How many headlines were there that women were taking over this, the Congress? You're like, Taking over, 20% is one-fifth. That's not taking over, and those numbers are not changing at the top enough. There are not yet enough Oprah Winfrey's who are women. Sheryl Sandberg's, okay. Uh, when you say when Goya Steiner marched in the streets to fight for the opportunities that so many of us now take for granted, 
She quoted Susan B. Anthony, who marched in the streets before her and concluded, our job is not to make young women grateful, it is to make them ungrateful so they keep going. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's important. We need to be grateful for what we have. I think about my grandmother's life. I have so many more opportunities than she had, and I want to be grateful for that. But we need to be a little dissatisfied, men and women alike, mm -hmm. that we're not using the full talents of our population. Because if we do, if we actually draw on the full talents of women in the workforce and the full talents of men at home, mm -hmm. our companies are better run, our companies are more efficient and effective, our kids are better off because they have advised fathers, and our marriages are happier. This is good for everyone. This isn't only good for women. This is good for men, too. It's good for all of us. Tell me, what are the three biggest mistakes women make in the wor workplace? Mm. Not believing in themselves and sitting at the table, side of the room. Sitting inside the, the room. That's right. Um, not making their partners real partners. You want to have a career. Every woman I know who has married, particularly if you have kids, you have a supportive husband who's not just supportive, like, yes. oh, honey, I'm excited for you. Yes. They're changing diapers. Yeah. Um, and the third thing is don't leave before you leave. You know, over the years, I saw this so clearly. Women, as early as junior high, are worried now about having careers and families. So they enter the workforce almost looking for the exit years before they have children. I really believe we all have to make our own choices, men, women. And there are really good reasons to leave the workforce or work less or take a different job when you want to be with your children. I just want women and men to make that choice once they have the child, not years in advance. Because by doing it years in advance, they don't get the right opportunities. They give up before they even start. They give up before? Don't leave before you leave. Start out aiming high. You have the what would I do if I weren't afraid chapter here. Yeah. And I know that that is in your posters in your office, yeah. and now it's in my office. That's right. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Has that mantra allowed you to move into spaces that you wouldn't have? Oh, yeah. It's, it's writing this book. If I hadn't met Mark Zuckerberg, there's no way I would have had the courage to write this book. If I hadn't met you, I wouldn't have had the courage to write this book. That, you know, just like admitting I leave at 530 was mm -hmm. hard. This, oh, there's a lot in there that's personal, a lot of advice for women. And, you know, it's so easy to say, who the hell are you to give advice, right? I don't pretend I have the answers for all women. Who the hell are you, Sheryl Sandberg, <laughs> I have to but say. I don't, I don't pretend to have the answers for all women and men, but I really want the world to be more equal. I really think we'll all be happier, and our businesses will perform better, and what leadership is will change. Mm -hmm. And I took a deep breath, and I'm, I'm doing it, and I want other people to do what they would do if they weren't afraid. You know what I want? I want... Mm, 334 copies of your book because I'm going to give them to every girl there. at my they school. Will, I'm going to honor. I'm going to give honor. them to every girl at my school. I think Just it's give the, me the address. It's the new manifesto for women it's in the honor. workplace. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Oprah. In the history of the United States, there have only been 112 Supreme Court justices. Not one of them looked or sounded like Sonia Sotomayor. She is the first Hispanic justice to serve on the nation's highest court. Like Sheryl Sandberg, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor is one of the most powerful women in our country. Gail King, editor-at-large for O Magazine, and I caught up with the feisty justice at Cardinal Spellman High School in the Bronx, 
where Sonia Sotomayor graduated 40 years ago. Oh, hello. What a thrill for me. What a thrill for me. Well, it's a nice thing when two people could be happy in meeting yes. each other. When you come, My, how often are you back here now? Well, once every other year, just about. Really? I noticed right away that Justice is no stranger to the students who know her as their most famous alum. What's it like for you to be back here, Cardinal Spellman? What kind of memories does this place hold for you? This was the beginning of my coming out of the, the smaller environment of family. Um, it was here that I began to see a larger world, just the very tip of it, because the world got a lot bigger when I went to Princeton. But here I began some of the things that would hold me throughout my life. Forensics club, mm. debating, debating, student government, um, community service. All those threads that I would pick up with more passion later on started here. But it is really humbling to walk these halls. And so coming back here and watching the kids watch me it's a touch of it being surreal. Like I in a dream, mm -hmm. what day is someone going to pinch and wake me up? Wow. Um, sitting here and looking at you gives me the same feeling. Oh, wow. Justice Sotomayor's memoir, My Beloved World, gives a vivid account of her unfathomable climb to the top. From a troubled childhood in a Bronx housing project to an Ivy League education, and finally, being nominated by President Barack Obama. Her against all odds story fulfills the promise of the American dream. What I got from this book is that you are an ordinary person who has made extraordinary achievements. And what this book does, in my opinion, it shows you to be a real human being. Thank you. Because we don't think of our Supreme Court justices as being real human beings. <laughs> <laughs> That's because we wear robes, don't you know? <laughs> yeah. We don't think of you as cooking and in the kitchen with your relatives oh, and I love all that. dancing. We don't think of you as human beings. What did you think when you heard President Obama was considering you for the Supreme Court? I thought he was crazy. Mm. No, seriously. Um, I, I'm not a betting woman, mm -hmm. but among all of my friends, I kept telling them, he's never going to pick me. Not in a million years is he going to pick me. I had a very contentious nomination to the Second Circuit Second Court of Court. Appeals. I just thought that... Each they, one get, gets more contentious, is what uh, you would Each one was harder and harder. And I couldn't figure out why he would elect to go into a battle over me. And so I was in total disbelief when I was called that day. So when he called you? I was at home, and he got on the phone, and he said, Judge, I was a judge then, I have decided to make you my nominee to the United States Supreme Court. And I don't cry. And the tears started to come down my They just eyes. shot out, right? They just shot out. Wow. And my heart was beating so hard mm -hmm. that I actually thought he could hear my heart. Really? And I had my right hand, because the phone was in my left, I had my hand on my heart trying to quiet it. Mm. And it was the most electrifying moment of my life. 
fantasy, yes, but a moment in which you sit and realize that you've gone further than any dream you ever had, mm -hmm. that you've reached something that never seemed possible. It is an overwhelming moment. President Obama asked that you make him two promises. Yes. They were? Follow the advice of his team, mm -hmm. which I told him I would do, and mm -hmm. I think I did. Mm -hmm. And the second was to stay connected to my community. Mm -hmm. And my response to him was, Mr. President, that's an easy promise to make. I don't know how to do anything else, how to be but... You couldn't be disconnected. My community still today gives me strength. The kids I meet inspire me to keep going. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and her younger brother Juan Jr. were born to Juan and Selena Sotomayor, who came to New York from Puerto Rico. Selena was a nurse, Juan a factory worker with a third grade education. Justice Sotomayor grew up in a crime-ridden Bronx housing project. Her mother forbid her to use the stairwells because they were littered with needles and other drug paraphernalia. When the justice was just nine years old, her father, an alcoholic, died suddenly from a heart attack. Justice Sotomayor writes that her mother was devastated by the death and became cold and distant. The only escape from the chaotic world around her was reading from the set of encyclopedias her mother had bought for the family. How do you think you were affected growing up with an alcoholic father. You become a watchful child. Mm. And I listened very, very carefully to the world around me. I think it, children who live with parents who are drug addicts or alcoholics or have psychological challenges, you also learn to watch people. Mm. You're looking for those subtle physical signs that tell you trouble is coming. Mm -hmm. That ended up being great for me. Because when I was a lawyer, I knew how to watch people so that when a witness hesitated, my mind would just race to the conclusion of, they're trying to hide something. Mm. What is it? And I would dissect the story in my brain, and nine out of 10 times, I would figure out the hole that they were trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us about that moment when, as a child, your father had died and your mother has gone into this dreadful morning that you didn't understand because they'd argued all the time, exactly. and now she is crying all the time, and you had thought, in some sense, that you're, when your father died, that things would get easier, even as a nine-year-old. Didn't really grow up understanding that my mom and dad had actually loved each other. Mm -hmm. They fought so much. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until writing this book, and it's been one of the great gifts of the, writing this mm -hmm. book, that I found a father I never knew mm. and found out that he and my mother had actually had a romance and that they actually loved each other. And even when, when she was home, you describe that you and your mother shared a bed, your brother and father shared a bed. I think I remember you saying it was like laying next to a log because she would turn her back to you at night, cold and distant. You know. Um, Writing about personal moments like that is very, very difficult. And I think what I wanted was to give whoever read the book who had those moments of just feeling completely alone in the world, mm -hmm. to give them hope. Hope. 
because it doesn't have to be that way forever. Mm -hmm. And also forgiveness. But that in itself, to feel that you are with this person, who, even though they're in the house with you, many children feel that way. Absolutely. Even though they're there, they're not really there. So that's, that's even a worse abandonment, I think, because you can't explain why I feel so alone with you even being here. It took us many years in repairing our relationship to become what it has. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a friend or anyone else in my life who doesn't know how much I adore my mother and how proud I am of her and how extraordinary she is. But we're both frail human beings. Everyone makes mistakes in life. One of the most compelling stories that you tell in My Beloved World, you paint the picture for us so vividly. There you are, this eight-year-old girl who's discovered that you have diabetes, juvenile diabetes. Yes. You have to give yourself a shot every day. I give myself um, three to six shots a day now. Do you remember the moment and the sensation as an eight-year-old girl when you made the decision, I will give myself the shots? Yes. That's a story that has stayed emblazoned in my mind because it did become the moment of my growing into an adult. Yeah. You know, at... at that was uh, a seminal moment. Absolutely. Yes. Because when you can take control of something like your disease and manage it, it liberates you into thinking that everything in life is possible. Yeah. That adversity won't knock you down. Yeah. In its 223-year history, Justice Sonia Sotomayor is the first Hispanic person to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. During her confirmation hearings, a former comment the justice had made about being a wise Latina caused an uproar of controversy. Some conservatives branded Sonia Sotomayor a reverse racist. The New York Times said Justice Sotomayor remained calm, cool, and low-key during that process. She was overwhelmingly confirmed with a 68 to 31 vote. Suddenly, you are thrust onto a national and international stage in a way that even you had not been as judge before. You had said in 2001, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. And that was repeated and repeated and repeated. Did you regret saying it, or do you think your comment was misunderstood? My comment was clearly misunderstood. And it was taken out of context. Mm -hmm. Anyone who reads the whole speech understands that the audience I was talking to were always young people. And what I was trying to convey to them was the fact that their life experiences had value. And when, that everything you describe in the pages of My Beloved World has value. Absolutely. That everything that's happened into your life and your upbringing, your surroundings. And, and it's not to suggest that they're incapable of understanding the same things I do. But it's not intuitive for them. What my speech was trying to communicate was we're equal. We bring maybe a different kind of richness, but it's a richness too. The head of the Hispanic National Bar Association, Carlos Ortiz, said that you carry mm -hmm. the hopes and aspirations of more than 50 million people. Speaking of all, <laughs> all 
Latinas. I, <clears throat> that's a lot of pressure. Huge amount of pressure. Do you feel that? Yes. I didn't think I would, mostly because at first I didn't believe it was true. Yeah. I actually didn't understand it till after I became a justice. Because when you're the first at anything, you carry the hopes and dreams. Yes. Yeah. You write about on, on growing up and being a minority. You say, I didn't know I had a sense of limitation until I got into the greater world. What did people say to you that made you feel your Puerto Ricanness, your Latinaness? Look, I've spoken about this honestly, mm -hmm. and I do even now. When I was nominated to the Supreme Court, one of the many attacks was that I wasn't smart enough. Mm. That statement has followed me in every step of my career. Is she good enough? Is she smart enough? Is she capable enough? That people have to cut you a break so that you can be successful. Mm -hmm. I dare say that I'm looking at you, Oprah, and that you have experienced the same. A little bit. Yeah, just, <laughs> a we little all bit. do. But you know what? I have actually loved it because I've been underestimated every step of the way. Me too. Every step of the way. And it's so exciting when you can prove them all wrong. Oh, it is wonderful. Yeah, it's and the best. You know, I haven't given up on the hope that we really will be an integrated society someday. I don't think we're fully there yet. Absolutely. But I haven't given up the hope that we might be. After graduating summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Princeton University, Justice Sotomayor married her high school sweetheart, Kevin Noonan, in the summer of 1976. She went on to Yale Law School and became a successful Manhattan prosecutor and corporate attorney. Seven years into their marriage, she and Kevin divorced. The justice has never remarried and has no children. Why did your marriage fail? Obviously, <sighs> you all separated and remained friends. But why, why essentially did it end, do you think? I think when you marry young, you run the risk, as, and, and the risk that we ran into, that you grow in different ways and in different directions. Um, I was completely consumed with work when I started as a DA in Manhattan, and I really wasn't paying attention to him. Um, I take full responsibility for that part of the end. But he also, as he explained to me at one time, at the end of our marriage, actually, after, that he began to fear not being as successful as I. Wow. And he's a very generous man, and mm -hmm. he said it to me in a very kind and loving way. But he said, you know, when we were in high school and you were doing so well, right. I just kept thinking, it's because she works at it. And when I decide to work harder at it, I'll be just as successful. And he said, one day I woke up realizing that no matter how hard I worked, I might not be as successful as you. Whoa. And that led me to think, does she really need me? Whoa. And it was a difficult issue for him to discuss with me and a hard one for me to hear. Mm. I loved him, and I knew he loved me. But did I need him in the way that he wanted me to need him? Mm -hmm. He was probably right that I didn't, not in that way, a feeling that I couldn't live without him. So next question, how does one date when one is a supreme 
court justice. I have no idea, because I haven't been able to since <laughs> I started. I was gonna, how does one date? Talk about intimidating. Good Lord. I worry about that, let me tell you. Uh, okay. I haven't had the time since I was uh, nominated and confirmed, because I've been sort of completely inundated in my, or, yes. or drowning in my work. But at some point, I'll pick up my head and say it's time to date again. When I do that, to you're going to have to find the guy for me. <laughs> you got to get in line with a long list of women. That's right. I know. I get, know. get behind me, Justice. <laughs> you can be next. Do you and the justices hang out? Do justices hang? <laughs> well, I guess we don't. Uh, go to a local bar on Friday nights <laughs> and, and drink the night away. Um, but we spend a lot of time during the work week together. Mm -hmm. Not only are we in court all the time, we have lunch all the time together. Um, and occasionally we play cards together. So, wow. uh, you know, yes, we do hang out just in a quieter way. Ju judges hang. Is this the most fun you've ever had, being oh. a judge on the Supreme Court? Is it everything you imagined it to be? No. 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 I loved my life as a district court and circuit court judge. Mm. There, I could be more me. Mm -hmm. You could go dancing and take off your shoes if you wanted and to. And nobody took pictures. Yes. OK? Um, and nobody cared. Yes. And um, I loved my work then. Mm -hmm. I had a freedom that when you become a justice, you're deprived of. Really? And that's not to suggest I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful life. And I'm doing things I never imagined. I'm very, very grateful. But you asked me a particular question. Is it the most fun you've ever had? had? And the answer, truthfully, is not really. Not really. The life I gave up was the most fun I ever had. Thank you for this time. You're welcome. Thank beautiful. you. It's beautiful. That was beautiful. Bravo. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.